Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in section 137 and 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, 137 actually fits back in the Kirtland era. Yeah. Section 137 was given in January of 1836. And if you remember when we talked about section 110 and section 109, when Joseph is giving the initiatory ordinances to select members of the church, he is also having a visionary experience. In the journal or in the records of Oliver Cowdery and John Coral, they talk about how their bodies were washed with pure water and anointed with holy oil in preparation for having visions. In fact, Oliver Cowdery says, The glorious scene is too great to be described. Therefore, I only say that the heavens were opened to many, and great and marvelous things were shown. So in the context of this section, we're back in the Kirtland era. It's before the temple's dedicated, and individuals are having visions, and they're having marvelous experiences. And Bryce, this section is an interesting section because it's a vision that Joseph is having, and yet in the visionary experience, there are people in the room that are alive that he's seeing in the context of redemption for the dead theology. Yeah. And this is absolutely brilliant teaching. We get to see God as a teacher in this section. So let me take you back to the early days of church history, the loss of Alvin Smith. Do you remember how much that affected Joseph? Alvin was probably the most interested in all that was going on in Joseph's life. Alvin was there behind Joseph. And and you might ask, Heavenly Father, why would you take such an ardent supporter at a time when Joseph needed them so much? His loss struck Joseph very deep into his core. So what in the ecology of God, what is he doing by taking Alvin? But watch the brilliant teacher at work. This is what I call creating divine curiosity. Far too often as teachers, we throw out the information without creating a hunger for it. And brilliant teachers create a hunger for it so that the student reaches out and asks the question when their mind is ready for it. So Heavenly Father could very clearly have come down and told Joseph, hey, I want to teach you about the work for the dead, or let's talk about the salvation of the dead. Instead, he creates divine curiosity. So during these revelatory experiences in Kirtland Temple, he takes Joseph on a vision of the celestial kingdom. Joseph is blown away by the gate that will enter, the throne of God he sees, the streets, He's marveling at the beauty of the celestial kingdom. And then he starts looking around and noticing people. He sees Abraham and Adam, which he clearly expected to be there. He sees his father and his mother. And I don't think that was a surprise. And yet they're alive at the time. They are. So it's like a future vision, It's a future vision. There's my father and mother in the celestial kingdom. Yes, I expect them to be in the celestial kingdom. But then watch the brilliant teacher. It's almost like he taps Joseph on the shoulder and says, look over there. Joseph, who's that over there? And Joseph looks and beholds his brother, Alvin. And it's almost as if the Lord says, okay, vision over, done. Because he knows what that's going to do to Joseph. Think about how Joseph's going to process that information. Wait a minute, how, how did he get to the celestial kingdom? And Joseph is hungering and thirsting for understanding. And revelation comes much better when we seek it and we're hungry for it. That's a divine principle. And so God creates that hunger by showing him Alvin. You know, on a practical level, Bryce, when I'm in the car with my children, the best time to teach them something is when they ask the question because they're ready. But if I just lecture to them, they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever, dad, I'm not really listening. Totally different scenario. Yeah. It's just so interesting. And I think that as a parent, boy, when they're asking the question, we should light up, right? Right. Now's my opportunity because there's divine curiosity. So I can take advantage of their divine curiosity or I can create that divine curiosity. So do you remember when Nephi wanted to know about his father's dream and about the tree and the, you know, the spirit and the angel kind of come and say, what do you want to know? 
He says, I want to know the interpretation of the dream. Now, how many of you out there would jump right into lecture mode and say, hey, Nephi, the tree is the love of God, and you answer the doctrine without creating divine curiosity? The angel doesn't do that. Instead, he shows Mary, who goes away and then comes back, and she's pregnant. Do you understand the condescension of God? Well, I know he loves his children. And then the angel asks Nephi the very question that Nephi had asked the angel. Do you know the meaning of the tree? And now Nephi does. He caught it on his own because he'd hungered after it. The Lord does the same thing to the brother of Jared in Ether. So the request was to touch the stones. So he comes down and he touches the stones. And the brother of Jared is kind of overwhelmed. Now look at the question he asks. Sawest thou more than this? Now that's a silly question if you're saying, is the Lord seeking information? Well, of course the Lord knows how much. You kept everything else from him. Of course he only saw your finger. But it's the very question that creates the divine curiosity. Hey, Mahanrai, did you see more than this? Planting in the head of the brother of Jared that maybe he could see more than that. And it works because what does the brother of Jared say after that? No, Lord, show thyself unto me. So I think before you jump into section 137 and focus on the doctrine, take a moment this week and notice a brilliant teacher at work and how he creates divine curiosity. Now, one other side comment I want to point out is, doesn't that help us understand that God has a purpose in our suffering? So way back when, when Alvin dies and Joseph was suffering so much, there's no way the Lord could have explained back then the glory that would come out of Alvin's death. But clearly the Lord knew what he was doing. How many billions of people will thank Alvin for being the vehicle through which the doctrine of the salvation of dead came to the prophet Joseph Smith? Billions will be saved because of that doctrine. And so I think that gives us a great comfort to know that, yes, the Lord has purpose in all of our pain. And that he doesn't let anything happen to us that is just simply not for our gain. So that's kind of the setting. So he sees Alvin in the celestial kingdom. And I wonder how much of this revelation took some time afterwards. And the answers came not that day in the Kirtland Temple, but as Joseph Smith pondered. And then came the answer. And the answer was, so notice Joseph's question is verse 6, I marveled how it was that he had obtained the inheritance in that kingdom, seeing that he had departed this life before the Lord had set his hand to gather Israel. Now, think about what was the common notion in, in Christianity at that time. If someone dies without being baptized, the notion that most people were teaching is that they were just damned, that Alvin didn't get baptized, so Alvin was damned. So William Smith reports that Joseph Smith's father struggled with this when Alvin died because he said, quote, the minister intimated very strongly that Alvin had gone to hell for Alvin was not a member of the church, but he was a good boy and my father did not like it. And so William Smith kind of opens the window into the mind of Joseph Smith's father. And that I don't had think, to have been conversations yes, in their household. Right? Yeah, I, I can't imagine Joseph feeling any different, right? right? It just doesn't make sense that a God who loves us, would condemn so many of us to this unending hell, not knowing who he is through no fault of our own, right? And so you can almost see like Joseph thinking about these yeah. things. And so there he is asking that same kind of question. Well, how did Joe Alvin get here if he didn't have a chance while on earth to accept the fullness of the gospel and the ordinances of the priesthood? And think about how that extends all throughout his ministry. But Joseph can't answer the question. He can't explain the alternative. He knows instinctively that can't be the answer. They can't be banished to hell because they ran out of time. But he doesn't know what the answer is. So now that he sees Alvin in the celestial kingdom, he knows it's possible, but now the question is how? It's like in math, he has the solution and he has the problem, but he doesn't have the process to get he there. He doesn't know how to connect the dots. And so now comes the revelation. Now with a student that's ready to be taught because he's curious and he's hungry, now comes the declaration of truth. So speaking of everyone that died before that moment, 
before the restoration came, before the missionaries start going out, the Lord says in verse 7, all who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. And that's going back. Now let's go forward. Because clearly, even today, we're not reaching everyone on earth. And so all that die henceforth without a knowledge of it. But notice this repeated sentence, who would have received it with all their hearts shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom. In other words, here's the doctrine, and we shout it from the rooftops because it declares the kind of being our heavenly father is. No one runs out of time. No one loses a blessing because they died before they had a chance to fulfill it. So going back to our conversation a couple weeks ago when we talked about how to make a marriage eternal, I know just talking about that causes a lot of people to have some concern because I haven't had an opportunity to check box number one and box number two. So am I just going to lose a blessing because I don't have the opportunity? And the answer is a resounding no. No one runs out of time. No one is denied a blessing simply because they died before they could receive it. Now, be careful that we don't push that too far because we can become complacent and in our laziness, we can procrastinate the blessing and end up losing it. So that can be pushed to an extreme, which is why I love the wording here. If you would have received it with all your heart, but didn't have an opportunity, then you receive the same blessing because you will have an opportunity. And that's our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father will grant everyone who wants a blessing the opportunity to receive it. Now, if you push it off, if you procrastinate, if you don't care, that's different. But if you want a blessing and would receive it with all your heart if it were presented to you, then you will never run out of time. So if your child died before they were married, if someone you loved never went on a mission because they died, I taught a beloved student once who had cancer his senior year and never, ever entered into the temple and never chose a companion. Well, I know with all of my soul that that opportunity is being given to him in the afterworld, and he will have every opportunity to claim that blessing. Powerful message. So looking at verses 8 through 10, all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts shall be heirs of the kingdom. For I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desire of their hearts, and then this verse, I also beheld that all children who die before they arrive at the years of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom of heaven. So what are some things that you see in verse 10 as potential questions that we don't have answers to? And how do you work through verse 10? I will tell you, Mike, that the first question on my list of things to ask God when I have an opportunity, the most confusing doctrine for me is the salvation of children. He promises in verse 10 that all children who die before they arrive at the age of accountability are automatically saved in the celestial kingdom. I have no idea how that is possible because everything I believe from the scriptures is that God granted us a probationary estate because it was absolutely essential for our salvation. Next year in the Old Testament, we're going to talk about the creation. And there will be a moment in the Garden of Eden where Satan has something up his sleeve. Satan wanted to tempt Eve in partaking of the tree of knowledge of good and evil before it was time, and then have her transgress. And then his plan was to rush her over and have her partake of the tree of life and live forever. The Book of Mormon teaches that that would have ruined the entire plan of salvation. Would you say that it's because that would split them up and they couldn't be together? That's one reason. Okay. The other reason that Alma gives to Zeezrom in chapter 12 is that it would have made God a liar. And the third reason he gives in Alma chapter 42 to his son Corianton is that it would have denied us a probationary state. So to go from sin to immortality and then to have either to have no children because you've been separated or to have immortal children because you've now partaken of the tree of life, 
no one would have a probationary state. And God granted a probationary state because it was absolutely essential. The Book of Mormon teaches that had we not received a probationary state, the plan would have been completely ruined. So when do children get their probationary state? I don't know. The Doctrine and Covenants teaches us that those who go to the celestial kingdom are those who are able to live the celestial law. When do children learn to live the celestial law? And what? how do you know that they'll all choose the celestial law and none of them will choose the telestial law? See, I think that's the question. Because, I, I mean, aren't there times when Joseph would tell a woman who buried a child, you'll raise this child in the millennium? And I think that speaks a lot of comfort to Latter-day Saints. But I think your second question— Does the child have agency? Could the child choose to not go to the celestial kingdom? Again, the Book of Mormon thoroughly teaches that those who go to the celestial kingdom are those who want to go there. So if we say that the brilliance of Heavenly Father is to make sure those who want to go to the celestial kingdom die before they're eight, then what does that say of all the rest of us? Why do the rest of us need to participate in a probationary state and some of us don't? I don't understand. And maybe it's worth acknowledging that there are significant doctrines that we just don't understand. Therefore, we trust Heavenly Father. I hope that someday He can explain to me how children are saved. But for the meantime, I just trust section 137, verse 10, and my wife and I had a child that never breathed a breath of life. She was lost in the womb. But we hold on to the hope of her glorious resurrection and that she will be in the celestial kingdom. I know the doctrine. I trust the doctrine. I just don't understand how it happens. So this is kind of how I noodle on this, and I don't know, but I think drawing a line on the board and on one end of the line, you have universalism, and on the other end, you have Calvinism or predestination, and they're tugging in a sense, you know, predestination is this idea that God wills all things. And so if something bad happens, it's God willed it. And Joseph doesn't like that. And then over on the other end, we have universalism, which I think his father was more leaning in that direction. And some of the early Christian fathers, this idea that God will save all who he can, or indeed, maybe he saves all. So in John six thirty nine, which is the bread of life sermon. Yeah. If you don't eat the bread, you don't get in, right? And It says this, and this is the Father's will, which he hath sent me, that all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again in the last day. Now, the Calvinist interpretation of verse 39 is, well, if you're not saved, God didn't will it. And so the the onus is put on God. In other words, God doesn't like you, and you're not going to get saved. Joseph doesn't like that. But the other end of it seems to mean this is my reading of it, is my Heavenly Father wills everybody to come home. That's his will. Now, is my will going to line up with his? And so, Bryce, I'm throwing this out there. I don't, I'm not declaring doctrine. I certainly don't know. But what if verse 10 is this idea that most of God's children will be exalted? Now, they'll take some time. You have to repent. You have to live the commandments. You have to follow the way. You know what it reminds me of? In the Gospel of Luke, in the prodigal son, when the prodigal son, remember when he's eating dirty, gross food and he's with the pigs? And there's this one line in there that says, when he came to himself, he remembered the father. To me, that is who we really are. When we come to ourself, we remember our heavenly father. And so what if at our core, that's who we are? I think that is a possible way out, but I think you're still assuming it's still a testing problem. period, yeah. an agency period. It, it's not necessarily a guaranteed, oh, they've made it end of story. Yeah. Maybe it's a prophecy of they're going to make it, but they'll somehow have to follow the same process. And, and by the way, if we take it as it's a, they're going to make it with universalism, none of us will repent because we're like, oh, Jesus will take the wheel and I don't have to do anything. And that's not the gospel either. That was Nehor's doctrine in the Book of Mormon. We're all going to be saved. So why work so hard? Yeah. Why try so hard? And so there's tension here, and I just think there's value in asking the question and pondering, but acknowledging that, Heavenly Father, I don't understand. And I trust the statement, and I look forward to understanding someday. By the way, it gives me hope. It does. 
So now that leads us to section 138, and there's a major gap here. We're going to go from the Kirtland Temple, Joseph Smith having visions of the celestial kingdom, to Joseph is now gone. The saints have arrived in Salt Lake. Joseph's nephew is now the sixth president of the church. This is Joseph F. Smith. And in preparing for general conference and in the opening of the October conference, his mind is preparing and he's pondering on the scriptures, and he receives a marvelous revelation on the spirit world. So we're going to go from Joseph Smith in Kirtland to Joseph F. Smith in the Beehive House in Salt Lake. But there's a little bit of history that kind of makes this section significant. Yeah. There was a global pandemic back then. And it's interesting because when the pandemic hit with COVID, I read a book on the 1918 flu. And it was so interesting how it talked about how many people it killed and that there were waves and that the flu killed so many people and it morphed, like it it changed and it killed even more people. And as I was reading this, I thought, you know, what's going to happen in our day? And it caused me to really pause. And I'm grateful that we're not in this space, but there was a global pandemic back then that dwarfed all the people that were killed in the war. So before the pandemic, there was a world war. They called it the Great War, and it claimed about 9 million lives, according to many historians. Just think about that number, 9 million. And yet, in 1918, the pandemic dwarfed the war. There were about 50 million souls that died worldwide. And just in October, just the month when when Joseph F. Smith receives this revelatory experience, in the month of October of 1918, 195,000 Americans died. And one historian called this the deadliest month in U.S. history. And it wasn't the war, it was the flu. And in this context of all these people dying, Joseph F. Smith is old and he's frail and he loses his son. His son, Hiram, dies. And right after Hiram dies, Hiram's wife, Ida, gives birth to a son who she names after Hiram. And after she gives birth, she dies. And so he's just very sad about all this death that he's experiencing. And some of these questions I think that he may have asked in his mind, I think they resonate with those of us who've experienced death amongst those that are close to us. Death itself is an absence. And for the bereaved whose kinsmen were among the missing or had distant graves in foreign fields, I mean, think about this. Many Latter-day Saints had people that had died in France. Even the rituals of closure that revolve around the body that were not available because their bodies weren't here, Um, the sheer overwhelming quantity of death awakened individual and communal grief on an unprecedented scale. People were really thinking about the purpose of life and what is the fate of the dead? Do they continue to exist? Is there life after death? People would ask questions like, will I see my loved ones again? The world was dense with loss. And as one journalist wrote, In 1920, when he saw the battlefields, he wrote, There is a pull from the other world, a drag on the heart and spirit. The world was dense with loss. And so I think the context of him losing his children and him going through this with the flu and seeing the devastation in the war, I think that context caused him to go to the scriptures and read 1 Peter and then verse 11. He ponders and the eyes of his understanding were opened. And then we get section 138. And I think, Mike, that is so significant. Before we get into the doctrines this section reveals, and they are wonderful and deep, but notice there's a lesson here about how to invite revelation. President Smith is pondering. He's yearning. He's inviting revelation. He's read the scriptures. He's asking questions. And notice the pattern. What brought Nephi's great vision to him? He was pondering the words of his father. What led Alma the Younger in his agony to turn to Christ? He remembered something that his father said, and he yearned for that. It's what happens inside our souls that quite often leads to revelation. It's the pondering and the effort. It's so much of what happens in the scriptures, but then it's what happens after we read the scriptures. And that we ask those questions, and why, and we wonder. I would hope that all of us would invite more revelation into our lives by being more thoughtful, 
more internal in our wonderings of God's great secrets. I think we need to read the scriptures more. There's no question that we all need to read the scriptures more, but I think we need to ponder and wonder at the scriptures more. That's what brought the revelation to Joseph F. Smith. That's what led to Joseph Smith's vision of the degrees of glory. Do you remember he was reading the Corinthians and he had a question about the term heaven and did everyone go to one heaven? So it's the pondering and the hungering that often leads to revelation. Yeah. And I think this is so personal when it's your son. That was a catalyst. Like you said, Bryce, I I love that. And just a thought about funerals. I think that's why in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we feel it's so important to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ because you have a ready audience that's asking the question. And sometimes the people in that audience, that may be the only time they go to church that year. And so what a great opportunity to take when their hearts are soft and their hearts are ready to carry the message of salvation unto them, because I think at least for me, when I go to a funeral of a loved one, I, I'm just, I'm ready to feel. I think we're, we feel more, don't we, Bryce? Yep. Well, that now leads to one of the greatest revelations about Jesus going into the spirit world that we have. We do not have a great record of what happened in the spirit world. That's kind of a hole in our doctrine, and it gets filled here by President Smith. And so, President Smith sees Jesus coming into the spirit world. He sees the reverence and the awe that the spirits there waiting for him feel. And you can just kind of see that great reunion. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that after his soul was made an offering for sin, he would see his seed. He would see those for whom he had just borne the burden. And what comfort to come right off the cross to say, it is finished, my burden is done, and then there are some of the people for whom you bore that burden. And to feel that love that he has for them and that they have for him is a beautiful little part of this revelation. But then there's a question mark for President Smith. He notices that Jesus didn't go to the prison portion, and he didn't go to the wicked. So again, he's pondering that. How is it possible that Peter says that the dead were preached to? Because I saw and he didn't go to the prison. Then that question gets answered in verse 29 and 30, where the Lord didn't go in person, but among the righteous, he organized his forces, he appointed messengers, he clothed them with power and authority, and commissioned them to go forward which may I say is a great commentary on delegating when you are in charge. There's no way you can go everywhere and do everything. So you organize your forces, you appoint messengers, you give them power and authority, and then you send them forth. So Jesus does that in the spirit world. He organizes his company, and then they now go in, and the preaching of the gospel in the spirit world commences. There seems to be an indication that in the Old Testament, if you died, you didn't go into the spirit world and preach. But now the door has been opened. Now we can go in and start preaching to those who didn't have an opportunity on earth. Which then, we again focus on the righteous, and President Smith sees Adam and Eve and Abel and Seth and Noah and Shem and Abraham, Isaac and Moses and Isaiah. I love that he mentioned Isaiah. I just think that's so cool that he saw Isaiah there. And Ezekiel and Daniel and Elias and Malachi and the righteous. And then he sees Joseph Smith, his father Hiram, Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, and other choice spirits. I wonder if he saw his son. So, He's kind of going back in time to seeing Jesus come in at the meridian of time, and now he's present day seeing people he loves who've left this world go into the spirit world, and then comes the declaration that our work is to go into the spirit world and preach the gospel. So there's a brief summary of the vision. He sees Jesus go in, he sees that reunion, he sees him organize his forces, and then he sees present-day people he loves continuing that work in the spirit world. Now, what flows out of this section are some absolutely wonderful doctrines that we need to pause and talk about. Doctrine number one that I want to point out is how they felt, how these spirits felt about not having a body. 
Notice in verse 16, it says that he went in there to declare their redemption from the bands of death. So even though their spirit had lived on, the loss of that body was a band. In verse 18, he says that the Son of God appeared declaring liberty to the captives. In verse 18, it says that they were to be delivered from the chains of death. And then if you go to verse 50, the dead had looked upon the long absence of their spirits from their bodies as a bondage. Now, this is a wonderful doctrine that sometimes we don't bring to the front of the gospel. We just kind of keep it in the back. Section 88, verse 15, the Lord declared that the soul of man is body and spirit. So when your spirit has lost your body, you've lost part of your soul. We saw in section 89, if you remember, Mike and I talked about two layers of the word of wisdom, and one of those layers is that the body is the instrument of the spirit, and one of the ways we increase revelation to the spirit is by taking better care of the body. So right after section 88, we saw the doctrine that body and spirit are connected. And now in section 138, we see that those who had lost their body were struggling. There was a major loss. Even though the spirit was very much alive, the loss of their body really affected them. So the doctrine is that body and spirit are inseparably connected. Now, this is not a podcast to continue this thought, but may I plant a thought in your head? Those of you who struggle with mental illnesses, depression, anxieties, emotional challenges, Please understand that the body and the spirit are inseparably connected. Anything that brings your body down is going to bring your spirit down. And if your body is having a hormonal reaction to something that's missing or whatever the cause is, if your body is depressed, you shouldn't be surprised if it affects your spirit. And people have often told me that in their dark depression moments, they struggle to feel the spirit. But you could see why, right? Because of the connection between body and spirit. Whatever tears your body down will tear your spirit down. Now, we don't go here as much because of modern medicine and the enlightenment. But in Jesus's day, the reverse was well taught, that the spirit could control and affect the body. I believe there is a degree of spiritual disconnect, that could affect your body. I'm not saying it's an always an equal causation, but I think there could be a correlation there to consider, right? Because whatever lifts your spirit will do what? If whatever affects your body, if whatever pulls down your body pulls down your spirit, then wouldn't the opposite be true? Whatever lifts your spirit will lift your body. And that may help in those moments when your body needs a lift. To rejuvenate that spirit can lift that body. So we'll leave those thoughts for another day. But I just want to point out that one of the doctrines that comes out of 138 is how much they thought about the loss of their body. Even though their spirit was fully living, the loss of their body was a major bondage to them. Body and spirit are very much connected. So Bryce, I can't help myself, but you're talking about how the two are connected. And in Genesis 3.21, it says, unto Adam and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them? And the word for skins that's translated is a pun. It sounds just like the word for light or an or. It sounds the same. And so there's all this Jewish tradition spinning around going, did God give Adam and Eve coats of light or coats of skins? And think about this, could the garment of the holy priesthood be a coat of skin or a coat of light? What if it's both? And could the body be like synonymous with the coat of skin and the spirit be synonymous with the coat of light? And we have God giving both to us. So I'm just throwing that out there as like a little geek out moment because these things are taught in so many different ways. And so if you're one of those nerdy people, you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. And I really do like the idea that your body and your spirit affect each other. 
for me, if I'm having a down day, just going outside and getting sun, it's amazing what that does for me. Yeah, a breath of fresh air or music or a walk in the park, anything that lifts my spirit is going to lift my body. That is a profound truth that we kind of keep at the outskirts of our gospel. And maybe we need to bring it more central. It's taught throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, and I just felt like we needed to bring it up again. Yeah. And when Bryce was going down the names of all these really cool people, Glorious Mother Eve and Father Adam and Abel and Seth and so forth, it reminds me of section 27 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's the great feast that will have the final feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is in a temple setting. So I see these verses as possible readings of a temple context. And side note, if you've ever been to a Greek Orthodox church on the Oconostasis, which is like their veil, they have the images of the saints. You've got Mary and there'll be one, you know, there'll be one of John, there'll be one of Enoch and Jesus. And, and there's all these saints. And the idea is when you eat the Eucharist, you're not just eating it with the living, but you're eating it with the dead and everybody's, it's this big communal thing. And so I read section 138 and I'm like, this is so cool because the earliest Christians got this idea that we are all part of the tree. We are all related in this participatory relational grace that's brought to us by Jesus. And so just look at the verses and look how the Lord lays it out. If you go to verse 14, it says they're firm in the hope of a glorious resurrection. And then verse 15 is they're filled with joy and gladness. Now that's a code word for the holy anointing oil. Like you're anointed with the oil of gladness. It doesn't say that, but I'm just, I'm riffing on that verse. But then look in verse 16, they're assembled and they're awaiting to escape the bands of death. And then verse 17, their sleeping dust was to be restored. There's a paper by Walter Bruggeman where he talks about this. It's called From Dust to Kingship. And to be short in speaking, He's an Old Testament scholar, and he goes through all the accounts in the Old Testament where kings are invited to arise from the dust, and to arise from the dust is a resurrection motif. That's pretty plain, but it's also to be invited to be a king. You see, when you make and keep covenants with God and you arise from the dust, you become a king. And his contention in here is that this is a royal ritual of enthronement in what he calls Israel's ritual temple practices. And as I read this article, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much what's going on because in the Christian tradition, everyone is to be a king. Everyone is to be a queen, provided they keep the covenant. And so they arise from the dust. So then if you go to verse 24, it says in the context of this assembly, this gathering, their countenances shone and the radiance from the presence of the Lord rested upon them and they sang praises. So big picture, they're assembled, they're singing praises, their countenances are shining, and I'm going to kind of throw out there, they're filled with joy and gladness, the oil of gladness, and then go to verse 23. The saints or the holy ones, the Kodeshim, they rejoice in their redemption and they bow the knee and acknowledge the Son of God as their Redeemer and Deliverer from death and the chains of hell. To me, as I read this, this is a group of saints, and we're kind of practicing doing this in church in the sense of we take the sacrament, we're assembled, and we're celebrating the rise of Jesus, like he's been risen. But in the early temple, they're also singing and doing these things. And where I want to draw your mind to is this passage in Isaiah. So in Isaiah 26, and I'm going to do a little bit of translation here because I think the translation is worth taking a minute and looking into. And so I'm going to start in verse 17 and read to verse 21, the end of Isaiah 26. Like as a woman with child that draweth near, the time of her delivery is in pain and crieth out in her pangs. So have we been in thy sight, O Lord. So this is a group of individuals that are crying out to the Lord. We, these saints, we have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. That's a rough translation. We'll get into that in a second. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Thy dead men shall live together with my dead body, shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. Think of the temple. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Now that's rough. That's, we're going to get into that too. 
Two more verses. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Okay, let's go a little bit slower, do a little bit more careful reading. So in the 18th verse, where it says we've been with child and we've, we've been in pain. In the Greek translation, so this is third century, as the Jews translated this into Greek, the text can be translated as follows. In our belly, we have seized and felt the pains of childbirth. And also we have brought forth the spirit of your salvation. Instead of bringing forth wind, they brought penuma soterias. So, so that's we've brought forth the spirit of your salvation. And by the way, when they're bringing it forth, it's the aorist of tiptoe, which essentially is this. We have birthed this. Like we have brought it forth as people bring forth life in birth. So we've brought forth the spirit of your salvation, and this we've created on the earth. But those that are dwelling upon the earth, and then this is where it can get kind of complicated. You can translate this as they will fall down prostrate. That's pesontai. But pesontai can mean a lot of things. It can mean that they will prostrate themselves, but it also can mean that they come under judgment or that they descend. And my take on this is what if it's all three? So in the text, in the King James, it says, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. But what if it can be read like this, that those dwelling upon the earth will fall down prostrate or that they've been cast down, come under judgment or descended. And the reason why I go with that and look at those three ways to read it is because of the very next verse. Verse 19, thy dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing ye that dwell in the dust. And then the rest of the verse is really rough. So here's my translation of this. My dead body and your dead will all live. So we have this joint living of the dead. And why are they living? And well, they're coming out of the dust. They've been cast down. So the next part of the verse reads, they will awake and arise and sing. And in the first temple they did, they sang hymns. And think about the temple, awake and arise and sing. You that are dwelling in the dust, instead of this dew of herbs, that's not what it says. In the Hebrew, it's literally the dew of lights. Orot, the dew of lights. Now, what does that mean? The dew of lights and your dew of the land will cause the Rephaim, now the Rephaim are the dead or these shades in Sheol, to fall prostrate. And then in parentheses, I write, as living ones before Yahweh. And there's lots of ways you can read this. Like the text in, in the King James says that the dead will be cast out, which is a resurrection. But what if it's also this image of this dew and by the way, it could be a plural amplification, a lot of light. Well, what does dew do? It covers the ground. I mean, in the story of the manna, they call it manna. And then they talk about how it covers the ground. And so the image I want you to have is like this light that's just covering the ground as the dead come up out of the earth and then they fall prostrate before God. And if you think about this as in a temple context and talking about putting on garments of light, big picture I think what Isaiah sees is a massive group of the dead living together, and they're going to arise, stand, and sing. And then verse 20, come my people, enter thou into thy chambers. There's a lot of ways you can go with that word, but one of the ways you can go with it possibly could mean the innermost chamber. And in the temple context, that's the Holy of Holies. In other words, come in come into my presence. And then verse 21, the Lord cometh out of his place and he's going to punish the wicked. And I like to read it also like this. He's going to bless the righteous. So I see these verses as possible readings of a temple context. And in verse 18, like we have been with child, we've brought forth the spirit of your salvation. What if that's what the saints in section 138 are saying through pain, we have literally borne the griefs of what it means to be a saint. We've laid this foundation. There's a spirit in this text of these individuals have suffered and they've built with their sweat. 
They've laid the foundation and borne it. And then they've given it to us. This legacy of faith, like you and I stand on the shoulders of great men and women who've done this and it's been painful. And I, I love reading it as the spirit of your salvation rather than you've brought forth wind. I think that's kind of a rough translation. But Bryce, I see this once again. That's cool as, imagery. As it's temple, just yeah. amazing imagery. And again, how often do we see that same pattern of saints rising up from the dead? We see that every time you become a saint through baptism. You die and you rise up in a glory. And what do we usually do after the baptismal service? We sing a song, united together. That's common imagery, and I just think that's really cool. Now, the next doctrine I would like to talk about, I will admit, is a conundrum and speculation. I in no way am declaring doctrine for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm going to show you the conundrum and show you a possible thought that may explain it. So here's the conundrum. In section 138, verse 20, Joseph S. Smith sees that among the wicked, he did not go. Among the ungodly and the unrepentant who had defiled themselves while in the flesh, his voice was not raised. So he's wondering, wait a minute, how can Peter say that he preached to the spirits in prison if I saw that he didn't go to that portion of the spirit world? So go back to verse 28, I wondered at the words of Peter, wherein he said that the Son of God preached unto the spirits in prison. Peter says that in his gospel, that he preached to the spirits in prison who sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God awaited in the days of Noah. But in his vision, he saw that Jesus didn't go to wicked people. So the answer comes in verse 29. As I wondered, my eyes were opened and my understanding quickened, and I perceived that the Lord went not in person among the wicked. Verse 30, but behold, from among the righteous, he organized his forces and appointed messengers and clothed them with power and authority and commissioned them to go forward. So that's the answer to the question. Jesus didn't actually go to prison and preach. He organized the righteous spirits and sent them into prison. So here's the conundrum. Ready? So verse 30, he organized his forces and commissioned them to go forth, and then go to verse 51. Speaking of those same individuals, these the Lord taught and gave them power to come forth after his resurrection from the dead. So he organizes the righteous to go into the spirit prison portion and preach the gospel, and then he empties paradise. He resurrects all the righteous. Did you see the conundrum? Who went and did the preaching? You know, Bryce, I had a conversation with Robert J. Matthews about this, and he said to me, maybe some people get left behind. Because I, I was trying to wrap my brain around this, right? right? Okay. Well, maybe some people left behind. Well, considering the number of people that are in the prison portion, the untaught portion— how could he leave one or two behind or even a small hand? He would have to leave a large number behind. So we're still back where we started. And that, let me turn your attention to Mosiah chapter 15. Abinadi is preaching to the priests of Noah and he says the following. I'm going to read from Mosiah 15, 21 through 24. Abinadi says, there cometh a resurrection, even a first resurrection, even a resurrection of those who have been and who are and who shall be even until the resurrection of Christ. For so shall he be called. And now the resurrection of all the prophets and all those who have believed in their words or all those who have kept the commandments of God shall come forth in the first resurrection. Therefore, they are the first resurrection. They are raised to dwell with God who has redeemed them, and thus they have eternal life through Christ who has broken the bands of death. Now, that sure sounds like they were all resurrected. That sure sounds like every righteous person came with Christ out of the grave. Now, again, is it possible that he left some there? Sure. 
But I want to throw out another thought. And I am not declaring doctrine for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm just throwing out another thought. I like to say, we're just looking at stuff. I'm just looking at stuff. Yeah. So what if Jesus organized his forces? What if he just left the door open and the instructions written on the wall and the manual there so that everyone knew how this work was going to proceed? So he gave all the instructions. And then he emptied paradise because, here's my thought, the salvation of the dead is the work of the Latter-day Saints. It is to be performed by our dispensation. Now that is a humbling thought. So Jesus organized his forces, emptied those people that were there waiting for the prophet Joseph and the keys that Joseph would take into the spirit world and would organize all of us now going into this paradise portion into a mission to preach the gospel. I think that's a fascinating thought that the work of saving the dead belongs to Joseph Smith's dispensation and that it is our work in the latter days that will save them. But are there other answers? I'm sure there are. But I just, to me, that just kind of puts a perspective on the latter days and what it means to be a latter day saint. We are to save everyone on earth today and billions of people in the spirit world. It is our work to save the dead. Everything you're saying just brings me to verse 53 in section 138. So I have to read this. The prophet Joseph Smith and my father Hiram Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilfred Woodruff, and other choice spirits who were reserved to come forth in the fullness of times to take part in the laying the foundation of the great Latter-day work. And then verse 54, I'm just going to skip to the end. They were also in the spirit world. So there's something to do with they are reserved possibly to do this work. There's this something going the on work, here. Yeah, this is the work of the Latter-day Saints. It is our dispensation that is to save from Adam to the end of anyone who didn't hear it on earth. Which leads me to my last doctrine. And I walk on sacred ground here. Joseph F. Smith saw that I beheld that the faithful elders of this dispensation, and clearly all the sisters, this is not a male thing only, all of the faithful Latter-day Saints of this dispensation, when they depart from mortal life, continue their labors in the preaching of the gospel of repentance and redemption through the sacrifice of the only begotten Son of God among those who are in darkness and under the bondage of sin in the great world of the spirits of the dead. Those of us who are destined to come to the latter days have not only an assignment here on earth, but we have a very significant assignment in the spirit world. Now, I believe, if you really ponder that doctrine, it may very well explain some unexplainable deaths. I'm sure every one of you listening has lost someone dear to you in an unexplainable way or age or time or circumstance. I don't understand why that person was taken. They were young or whatever the circumstances are. My brother passed away when he was 12. Why is it that so many young people pass away? Why do fathers of young children pass away? Why do mothers pass away? Why is it that sometimes we have these unexplainable deaths? Well, if we understand the magnitude of the work that the Latter-day Saints have to accomplish, maybe that might explain some of the need to take some of these righteous people from the this side of the veil and help with the other side of the veil. Maybe they were taken for a divine cause to preach the gospel there. Now, I submit to you this incredible quotation from Neil A. Maxwell from his book, Notwithstanding My Weakness, and we'll surely put this in the show notes for you. Elder Maxwell wrote, 
on the other side of the veil, there are perhaps 70 billion people. 70 billion people. They need the same gospel, and releases occur here to aid the Lord's work there. Each release of a righteous individual from this life is also a call to new labors. Now, to those of you who have lost, this is me speaking, not Elder Maxwell. To those of you who have lost someone dear to you, listen to the next words from Elder Maxwell. Those who have true hope understand this. Therefore, though we miss the departed righteous so much here, hundreds may feel their touch there. One day those hundreds will thank the bereaved for gracefully foregoing the extended association with choice individuals here in order that they could help hundreds there. In God's ecology, talent and love are never wasted. The hopeful understand this too. To all of you who lost someone you love, Imagine how you will feel when the hundreds of spirits who your loved one reached and taught appear to you someday and thank you for letting that person go so that they could be touched. That is a tremendous comforting doctrine. To me, it really is beautiful that that same spirit which we have here will continue and another thought, as a side note, you probably had this a lot on your mission when you tried to reach people, but circumstances of mortality made it so hard to find them. Like they were working on the farm or they weren't available or or what have you. And I think in the spirit world, talk about a captive audience. They're not going anywhere. And it kind of blows away the atheist position that there's not life after death because here we are. So it's almost like a ripe and ready classroom experience. And they're asking the question, like, what next? And right? how grateful will they be for someone who brings it to them? Yeah. And those that have knowledge will want to teach it. This is beautiful. That's a great quote by Elder Maxwell. Yeah. So one time I, I taught a wonderful high school student who had recently lost her father and was grieving as she should at the loss of her father. And I said, I want you to go to the temple and do baptisms for the dead. And I wonder, I just wonder if anyone that you're doing the ordinance for was taught by your dad in the spirit world. Wouldn't that be a wonderful connection if your dad left you to go teach them and you went into the temple and performed the ordinance for them? That would be a wonderful connection. Every time I attend the temple right now, I wonder if this is someone my dad reached. If this is someone my dad taught, those of you who've lost a loved one, their talent was not wasted. It was simply moved to another field of labor, and they may be reaching people there that no one else could reach. This doctrine of the salvation of the dead is one of the most glorious things we know in the latter days, and it connects us all. It connects the living to the dead in ways that just tie our hearts together. How grateful we are for a God who doesn't condemn us to hell if we die without truth. How grateful we are to know that a God gives opportunities to gain blessings to those who died without that opportunity and that we are connected to them. I am so grateful for the doctrine of the salvation of the dead, and I truly do believe that those we say goodbye to will bless so many people who will thank us for saying goodbye to them. It's a beautiful end to these passages of the Doctrine and Covenants. We have covered so much ground, and I just want to close out this part of the text by just uh, saying thank you, the listeners, for uh, sharing and also for your kind words. Many of you have said very complimentary things as we've gone through this, and it means a lot because, you know, obviously if no one's listening, there's really not much a reason to have a podcast. So I feel honored, Bryce, that 
I've been able to work with you on this. I feel like it's made me a better person. And we thank you for participating with us in this journey through the Doctrine and Covenants. Next week, we'll do the Articles of Faith and Official Declaration 1 and 2. And so with that, we'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.